Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of 1 Timothy, where it was just read for us, and we'll be hearing from God and what He says from this entire chapter. If you are unused to maybe the Bible or the book of 1 Timothy, it seems or it appears to us that the entire first chapter is a call for the church to defend itself by truth against error. Chapter 2 seems to go into a mode or a personality of recognizing or reminding all of us that, that through this we're all under some form of authority. And we're all to submit ourselves to some kind of ruler who God has placed over us to where it then transitions, I think, clearly into chapter 3, showing the beauty and the glory of the church when it's properly ordered for the sake of his truth going out and his people being loved by one another. I wonder if you've ever looked around internally here and have asked, who has God given our church to elder us? Or who has God given our church to deacon or serve us? Who who has God called to edify this church as an elder or a deacon? We often think about offices like that when it comes time to vote on them, maybe at the end of the year, if you're from a different church at different times of the year or different times or different seasons. But the personality of the scriptures is for all of us to to wander around thinking, who who has God placed in our lives for this case? And the point of that is we are constantly to be surrounded by godly leadership. Godly leadership is a gospel essential for our church and for all other churches, according to the Bible. If you and I are going to be placed in a healthy church, we have to be given godly leadership over us. If we're going to be healthy to the point where we're expressing the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, as Ephesians calls it, then we need godly officers to help remind us or even point us to that. So if you've got your Bibles at 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, I've been in this, uh, if you're new to our church or new to Christianity in general, I've been preaching through this book for several months now where it has shown us various priorities of a local church, various priorities of a local church to the point where it's answering the question, what does God want from Crosspoint? What does God want from Crosspoint? We're a local church who desires to be faithful to the Scripture in its own life, its own identity, and also its outward ministry towards the world. Now today, the the Word will speak to us about the importance of biblical church leadership. And and in many ways, this is not a fringe issue. This is not something that only some people should give themselves over to, and then others, we can just kind of do whatever we want with that. But we're to give ourselves over to what the Word says about church leadership. If God brings us together and he wants us to be discipled and grown up in the faith, then we have to see that he has given us, exactly as he's designed, particular leadership. Now, God calls Christians to love the word, to be captured by the word of God, where our thoughts, our imaginations, our dreams, they're all captive to his very word, to where our belief and our faith are captive to the truths of the scriptures. And and his word shows that he's, through this, appointed teachers of that world to promote that very thing. God calls Christians in the church to pray. So he calls us to love the word, but he's called us to pray. And if we're disciples of Christ, then we're a praying people. Prayer does a lot of things, but one thing it does is it acknowledges that you and I are actually not in charge. You know, everyone thinks that they're an atheist until a tornado was coming at their house. Right, I heard a joke the other day that no one believes in God until they're at a guest house and a toilet is running. And they all call out to someone to help. Right? 
And that's really what prayer does, is it helps us acknowledge that we are not in charge, but he is. So prayer is a living demonstration of the sovereignty of God and the practical life of the believers. And and God has appointed officers in the church to lead the church in prayer. See how he does that. He, He appoints leaders to guide us to the word, to guide us in prayer, but also God has called Christians in the church to love and serve one another practically. When we're in trouble, he's called us to minister to one another. When we're in need, he's called us to minister to one another. We're to tangibly show our love and care and concern for one another in the church, and that advances itself towards the world. And he's put a body of officers in the church to be a living, breathing, walking, talking example of love of one another. And so the issue of biblical leadership, where this text has it in elders and deacons, is crucial. What would the church be like without people leading in our understanding of the word or leading in our pathway to prayer or leading in our love towards one another? What kind of church would that be? In many ways, a gospelless church. When the gospel takes hold of people's lives, it leads to growth and grace in the way of word and deed. And God calls men in particular to lead us here as it's outlined here in the qualifications of what it says as overseers or deacons. So when the gospel works into a Christian It takes our heart to a deeper understanding of who he is, to where our lives are transformed, to where we are a bright witness to a watching world. And the the gravity of this text, chapter 3 and all of 1 Timothy, is that this church, in particular the church of Ephesus, has shipwrecked itself in many ways. You might think, man, how did that church just blow up? Anytime a church blows up in town, a lot of us become, what what happened there? Who did what? Or what what happened to that set of church? And, And here in the book of Ephesus to the church of Ephesus, they are shipwrecking themselves, and Paul is outlining, in part, you are shipwrecking yourselves because your officers are not godly. And that's the flow of our passage today, where godly leadership will lead to a great witness to the watching world. The world will look at that church and say, there's something different about them. What they believe, what they think, what they speak, how they act, what they prioritize, what they love, it seems different. And a gospel witness will result from this working of God inside a church through his leaders and officers who act both in word and deed. Now, today's text shows, I think, three major movements, which is why I've aimed to package it all in one sermon, because there's three things happening there, and you'd be well served to isolate section one, section two, section three, and spend a whole lot of time studying the intricacies and the particulars of this, but But I'm bringing all of chapter 3 together because I know that a lot of you go, is he really going to preach 50 minutes on every passage again like he did in chapter 2? I'm sorry. No, I won't. Packaging all this together because I think there's a a grand theme in chapter 3. Through elders, through deacons, we see the glory of Christ there in verses 14 through 16. Elders edify us with the gospel through example and exhortation. That's the first part. Deacons show us the gospel through their deeds of love and mercy. That's that second section, verses 8 through 13. And then the church magnifies the gospel through our service to Christ. So this is the aim of our passage. The word speaks to us in showing that the aspiration of godly leaders to work out their call in word and deed is good to the point where it brings glory to the Father. In this passage, you'll see a list of qualifications for elders and deacons and What these corresponding lists show is these men live out the truth as much as they speak it. They live out the truth as much as they say they serve it. And their hearts are examples that fuel the example of everyone here. 
So first I want you to see uh, if you're using an outline provided in the bulletin that, that elders must be godly according to God's word. Elders must be godly. The first thing our text shows is God giving elders to the church. And, and this is more explicit in Ephesians chapter 4 where elders are talked about as actually a gift to the church. Why does God give church elders? The point of this passage is to edify the church by the elders' example and exhortation. And he does this so that the entire church is equipped for every good work. And those elders ultimately will give an account for how they do their job. They'll they'll be the ones that stand before the Lord and say, this is how I've cared for your people. Now in verses 1 through 7, it's a long list of qualifications. And all these qualifications, but one, are basically character qualities. So you look at what must an elder be like. In reality, he must be godly with one example of what he must do. In other words, all of the qualifications have to do with the man's life, what he's like personally, what he's like in terms of his relationship with unbelievers, what he's like in the context of his own family. All of these qualifications except one are character qualities. And the one competency or the one qualification based on his competency is in verse 2. He also not only must be godly, but he must be able to teach. Or he must be able to handle the word. He must be able to receive maybe a comment from someone and say, that's exactly what the word says. Or actually the word says this. Or he may be capable of standing before people and say, thus saith the Lord. Or, or handle it in the context of a, of a smaller group or a larger group. But he must be able to teach what God has revealed to us truthfully in the scriptures. So an elder is to be one who can teach. But he also must be a man of prayer. It's an emphasis in the scriptures that leaders of God's people are prayerful men. If you've got your, uh, if you've got a copy of God's Word, turn to the left. Turn back to the book of Acts if you're not familiar with the Bible and how it's laid out. Turn back maybe six or seven books and it'll say Acts on the top of the page and go to Acts 6. Acts chapter 6. Six is a big number, hopefully in the middle of a page. And then I just want you to see this in its context and this helps us understand what exactly an elder does. He, he teaches, he's capable of teaching, but he's also a man of prayer. There rose in the church of Jerusalem a major issue, a crisis was happening. And the apostles would normally fix different crises within the church. A pastor may normally fix a, an issue within the church, but this one, the church had grown so big that the apostles said, we actually need to keep doing what we're called to do to, point, to the point where they actually appoint other men to do Uh, certain help uh, capabilities or certain capabilities to help them. The problem here in this this particular church was that there was disunity within the membership. The membership became uh, the opposite of unified. They became warring against one another. It's never happened in church, has it? People have never bickered at each other. People have never snapped at each other inside the church. You, You would have no idea what this might look like. What is supposed to happen when that happens? Well, here we have a great case study or a test case on on how this particular church, led by these apostles, actually dealt with disunity inside the church. There were Greek-speaking widows in a predominantly Aramaic or Hebrew-speaking congregation. So you had this minority of people who saw themselves being overlooked in the administration of what would fuel them. These, These widows would have been starving had it not been for the benevolence of the church. And there was a certain certain subsect of this church that was being overlooked whenever they would pass things out. You can imagine how that would destroy the unity where we were all one in Christ, but there's kind of different levels of 
of who gets what. Not that that's ever happened. There's never been this group or that group demographically in the church. You would have no idea about that at all, right? These leaders in this church at the Church of Jerusalem said, we actually don't have time to spend effort on that. Why? To the point where we must delegate unity building in the church to a certain group of people. The apostles are basically saying, our job is this, this is very important, but that cannot keep us from what our job is, so we're now going to delegate that unifying action to what are called these deacons or these servants. Now, why did the apostles do this? We have this in Acts chapter 6, verse 4. The apostles chose to delegate this unifying process to these deacons because it says in verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. If we keep our eyes off of what we've been called to do, then that is keeping us for how God has decided to fuel our church of the ministry of the word and of prayer. So they delegate it to these qualified men who will help care for these people both sides to where their church is, God willing, reunified once again. There's a story of this ancient tribe that is in the valley of a beautiful mountain, uh, mountain place. I don't know what you call a mountain place. Someone help me. No one knows. Okay, so you have this, uh, (laughs) everyone, man, boy, am I a dummy today. All right, so there's this ancient tribe who's at the foothills of this beautiful mountain, and at the top of the mountain is a spring that is flowing just refreshing water down to the village. And the village has decided that there needs to be a group of men who stay up on top of the mountain, making sure that the water remains pure. They keep people out of it. They make sure it's nourished. They don't let anyone in it. They don't let any foreigners in it. They they want to protect this. Why? Because it's fueling this entire town. Now, what happens over time is these men are sitting up on top of the mountain, and they get uh, distracted by different things. They want to be back down in the mountain, or they start hunting or farming up there. They're not watching over the water. Or people down in, in the valley, people down in the town are saying, you know, what are you guys doing up there with all your time? Actually, come down here and help us. We want to give you more things to do. You're only working, you know, so many hours a week. We want to get give more things on your plate that are good things, they're great things, and what happened over time was this water became, or this water became uh, polluted to where everyone in the town was now malnourished because they had left their duty of protecting the spring. Well, the illustration hopefully is clear, that God has appointed some to protect the purity and the glory of his truth going to the church to the point where God has also appointed some to protect the unity in this case, the village, or the unity of the church altogether. If we confuse those two, then someone is not doing their job. And so what the apostles were doing in Acts chapter 6 was saying, hey, there's war inside the church, and that must be dealt with, but not by us, so that we can keep ourselves to the ministry of the word of prayer. If we take our eyes off that, then it's going to pollute the church in other ways. If we have pastors who don't pray, that's going to pollute the church. If we have pastors who don't administer the, the word to the to the church, and that's going to pollute the church. And so they said, because our job is important, because this opportunity is important, we're going to delegate godly men to oversee that unifying effect of the church being made whole once again. So the apostles saw their work as leading the church through prayer and the ministry of the word. They were to edify the congregation through the ministry of the word, through prayer and through teaching. And this is what 1 Timothy 3 says, that they will do that properly by a biblical example so that their exhortation is given credibility. 
If they're ungodly, then there's no reason to listen to their words. If they're ungodly, there's no reason to understand that God would respond to their prayers. Now, interestingly, we see this come into play again in Acts chapter 20. Turn, turn to the right if you're still in Acts 6 to Acts chapter 20 and go to verse 28. We, we see this play out not only as an example in the negative of what's to do with deacons, but also in the positive of what these elders are to do. Acts chapter 20, verse 28 through 31. Paul here is talking to the Ephesian elders before he would talk to them in the letter of 1 Timothy. So you think this is years back. It says in verse 28, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that after three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Here Paul is speaking to these Ephesian elders, saying it's their job to protect the flock and to feed the flock. And you might say, how must our elders protect us and feed us? There's probably a lot of ideas of how we can, but God's word says here that they can do this by prayer, giving themselves over to the things of God, and by God's word. How has God ordained his church to be operated? Well, under the overseeing and protection of elders, how are elders called to shepherd the flock and teach the flock and guard the flock and guide the flock? It's not a Harvard business degree. It's not an ability to do amazing things or even say amazing things, but two things. Giving ourselves over to prayer on behalf of the saints for the saints and to giving ourselves over of the right administration of what God's word says. Now, if we come back to 1 Timothy... Again, I think the emphasis of 1 Timothy is not what elders must do, but what elders are to be. How they will accomplish all of that will be an outflow of who they are. So I'll give you know, some, some casework on what elders must do, and you might think, that's awesome. I love it. But that will be completely ineffective. Teaching will be completely ineffective. Prayer will be completely ineffective if it's done by ungodly men. And so this word is saying, men, those of you who are called to be elders, be godly before anything else or everything else you do will not matter. You may have gone to a funeral and they list off a ton of accomplishments of the deceased. And you might walk away from the funeral and say, you know, they never really talked about his character or his heart. Maybe the flip side, just an unimpressive man or woman. Uh, they did nothing to earn the fame of the world. But listen to how their children speak about their father or their mother or their parents talk about their deceased loved ones or their friends say, you know, he didn't have much, but he did point me to the one who did. In the same way, that is exactly what elders must be. They must lead by their example and by their exhortation. They must be godly men who teach the word with all godliness when they preach and when they pray, it must come from a heart that is purified. They will, as Ephesians 4.12 says, they will then equip the saints for the work of ministry based on their life. 
What an honor. What a burden. What a joy. What a weight. And whenever I find this church ineffective in worship, and whenever I find this church ineffective in prayer, ineffective in our own evangelism, ineffective in our own joy, ineffective in our own love, or even our own respect of reading the word, I see myself. I see ourselves. Elders see ourselves. Because God doesn't give elders to the church so that elders would do the church's work for them. God gives elders to the church so that the church would be equipped in such a way to follow the elders. And so we must be willing to be followed, not based on our charisma or authoritative words, but by our hearts that have been redeemed and continually brought back to the waters that give us nourishment. If I expect you to do godly things, and I, and I do, it is because hopefully you can look at me and say, okay, I see you doing that too. So whenever I see us not, I know I need the water much more than you. God knows you need to be edified. God knows you need to be taught. God knows you need to be prayed for and with. God knows, need, God knows you need to be lifted up and be reminded of the Zion of which we're all watching and marching towards. And so God has chosen to give you elders. It's for your sake. And the call of an elder is two ways. One way is God calling them, and another way, Paul says, is that they aspire to do it. In the beginning of, of this section, it says it's a good thing. It doesn't say it's a burdensome thing. It doesn't say it's a haunting thing. It doesn't say it's an overwhelming thing. It says those who aspire to the office of elder, that's a good thing. Good luck, because you must be godly. You must be willing to die. The church, Christians, the body of Christ, is who Jesus loves more than anything else in the world. It is the, the one thing who on their behalf, he absorbed the wrath of God. And in Acts, and in Ephesians, and in 1 Timothy, and in Titus, and others, it says that he does that by giving you men who are to point you to their own Savior. Friends, eldership is a gospel issue. It's that big of a deal. The gospel works in the elders' lives, being men of the word and men of prayer, captured by God, by his grace, living in such a way that you, fellow church member, and the watching world would see the glory of Christ through their lives. And God has given shepherd teachers to us so that the Bible becomes part of us so that prayer becomes our instinct, so that godliness becomes our own aspiration. And God says, men who want to do this are, must be, are to be godly men. And it's good. And it's finally in this section, a gospel issue again, because if you look at this, no man can do this. No man can look at those qualifications and say, there's no strike against me. This, again, is where it's a gospel issue. Where in the gospel message, which Paul wants Timothy to clearly proclaim to the church, begins and regularly rehearses that it is God alone who is good and perfect. It's, it's quickly, quickly, it's that it's men and women, you and me, we are not good. The gospel message says that everything was good, and we are to be good, but we are not good in our own root. We don't do well with what we've been given, and our own what we've been given, we're marred by the sin of generations past. But Paul wants to remind them quickly that it's from this where God's mercy continues to overwhelm those who are not good, to overwhelm those who are sinful, where we are naturally, by our very work, 
sinful, but we as a church, praise God, for we, while we were still sinners, it is Christ who died for the ungodly. Not the godly. Godly people don't need Christ's death, but only the ungodly need it. We need to understand that it was him who knew no sin, became sin, so that we might become righteous, the righteousness of God in him. We need to understand that God delivered his son up for us. We need to understand that Christ died for our sins and was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. And within the scope of this text, it is quick for us and right for us to see who qualifies for this. The one who says, not by my own qualifications, but let me point you to the one who does. A friend and fellow church member says that I have the most haunting job where I ascend the stairs looking at the cross that all of our sins placed him there. But then I have the best job where I turn around and look at all the ones whom he died for. And in many ways, that's the regular rehearsal of a leader of a church is to say, I am who I am by the grace of God. And by the grace of God, you can be who God is making you to be. And within the scope and deliverance of the gospel message going out, it is Christ who serves as a true example for all of us, who not only gives us life, but gives us fuel. His church's life being fueled by giving us these people who say, let's again look to the one who saves and sanctifies and will one day place us beside him in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the edification that the elders must bring to a congregation to where a healthy church needs to know whom God has called to lead the charge to Zion. So that when we'll get there, we'll joyfully say, all that has been said is true. My faith has become sight. So God's word said that elders must be godly. Second thing he says is that elders or deacons must show the saints how to love one another. Another way put, God has given deacons to the church and they must be godly. The church is also led in deeds of service by deacons. He's led by word and prayer by elders, but he's led... His church is led by deeds of service by deacons. Chapter 3 shows their exemplary lives, and by doing so, their lives will show church members' lives the beauty of the gospel through tangible love. You want to see what the gospel looks like? Watch me love others. That's really how we see God's glory through chosen people. In John chapter 13, you don't have to turn there, but in John chapter 13, it shows Jesus on the night before his betrayal. He was in the upper room talking to his disciples, and he did something that came across as very strange to them, where he started taking his clothes off, his royal robes off, you could say, to where he just almost had a towel wrapped around him. He took off his outer garment down to where he was just wearing a towel around his waist, and they would have known at that time, okay, uh, what are you doing? Because you're starting to look like what a house slave would look like. This was the attire of a slave. And all of his disciples would have recognized that. And he began doing something even more strange of what they would experience from him. He began to wash their feet. The disciples would have known that this is what house slaves actually do. They wash the feet of visitors. And this is a very menial task. You know, who wouldn't want to cook hamburgers instead of washing the feet of people who come in off the streets? But suddenly in John chapter 13, you see Jesus operating in that fashion. And you know the story and how it goes. The disciples were incredibly embarrassed about what Jesus was doing to the point where they were saying, stop washing our feet. He later in the chapter would explain to them by what he meant and what he was doing, basically saying that he's giving them a new commandment. 
that you, God's people, are to love one another as you've, as you've been loved by God. That's the new commandment. By this, the whole world would know that you're a Christian. And he was saying, I'm giving you a new commandment. Do this, and people will know that you're a disciple of me if you love one another. Now, this new commandment phrase is not new because it wasn't in the Old Testament. So many examples in the Old Testament and commands of love like this was portrayed. So what makes this commandment, which seems to be replicated hundreds of times, what makes this commandment new? Well, what makes it new is that their love, as they reflect this, their love would be an outflow of Christ's costly, sacrificial death. That's what makes it new. Before, it was just an example. He's saying, do this, a new commandment, because of my coming sacrificial death, as I have loved you. Why, do Christians, why are Christians called to love the way they are to love? It's not because we're good people. It's not because we have a set of rules. It's not because we have a couple of examples. We love the way we love because our Lord was slain on our behalf. We love because he committed the most costly thing that could have ever been done. So it's easy for me to call you when, I feel, when you feel depressed and say, let me remind you of the sweetness of Christ. I do that not because I'm good or I read a psychology manual last week, but because he died for all of us. And so in 1 Timothy, God has given a group of officers to the church who are to exemplify this very thing in how they serve the church. In times of need, practical need. These people's example and service show us, their actual examples of how we serve one another shows us of how we're to serve one another. We're to look at these men and say, if if that's how they're to love, then I'm going to love like that. God has called our church to be a radically serving church towards one another. And he wants us to always be ready to say, how may I help you? How may I serve you. And he knows because of our weakness and our sin that we need regular helps and regular reminders of what service is. Because we're so distant, naturally. We're so selfish in our hearts. We're self-centered. We're a me-first kind of people. That's, that's us, naturally. Amazingly, I said this in my Sunday school class this morning. I thought of it last week. Amazingly, when Eve ate at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what did she do when she grabbed that thing that was going to radically transform and change her life? She didn't even share it. She just took it for her and then offered it to him. It's amazing how much we think about ourselves. But God, being rich in mercy, has given our church a group of people who are supposed to be always thinking and living the priority of service in their lives. Going back to Acts chapter 6, the issue there is that some people were being left out when receiving the the goodness and the grace of Christ. And so these men would have been saying, hey, I want to step in here. I I don't like people bickering at each other. I don't like people feeling left out. I don't like stones being thrown at others and received by others. I want to go in and say, okay, here's how we can divide this equally. Here's how we can set things up. Because they're to be servants on our behalf to where we want to serve like them. So that we, the membership, are motivated to begin to emulate their service to Christ's body. We're to look at them and go, okay, okay, that's the gospel made visible. That's love, deeds, and sacrifice. Now, in this text, I don't need to explain every word or every phrase. You, you can look at this. I think it's a great example of maybe what you guys can do in your life group or maybe on your own. Or take your wife out for coffee and say, what does it mean to be a one-woman man? I'm sure she will give you an answer. 
So I'm not going to hover around all these phrases about the elders and the deacons here because I, I want you to keep the, the sweep of the scope, what's going on. But I do want you to notice how, how it pairs with the qualifications of an elder. They're actually very similar here. These list of qualifications and the list of deacons. And here's the thing. What's the life of an elder to be? Godly. What's the life of, an el- of a deacon to be? Godly. Because the sight of the gospel depends on it. That's why I think verse 8, the clear connection between these two offices, ours is translated, the two connections between these two big paragraphs, is the word likewise. So here's what these men and overseers must be. They're to be godly. Likewise, these servants are to be godly as well. That's basically the life of a deacon. Godly. There's a joke all the time on the internet. Those of you who might have grown up in a youth group culture, um, those of you young men who grew up in a youth group culture know if I hold like five chairs on this side or five chairs on that side, that girl's going to notice me at camp. She's going to say, oh man, yeah, I will follow that chariot to glory. You know, we often think that's what real service looks like. How many, how many chairs can I put on my arm? How many plates can I spin at a time? How many houses can I go visit in a single day? What is the real mark of a servant of the church? A changed heart. Godliness. Not, not so that I'm the only one lifting the chairs, but so that you see me lifting one or two chairs out of a heart of sacrifice and costliness, and you go, I want to follow the Lord like that. I want a visible sign of the gospel like that. I will help you with some chairs. It's amazing how many times people come up to leaders and say, you know, someone needs to do something about that. And you go, hey, redeemed saint. Let's do it together. Hopefully it comes out like that. <laughs> Their deeds and love are a sight of the gospel that is made more clear. Now, for just one or two minutes here, let me go a little bit deeper on just one part, because there is a textual issue here that divides uh, agreeing Christians on so many other things. There's one textual issue that divides people, and it's in verse 11. Verse 11 in some of your Bibles will say their wives, meaning Paul lists qualifications of the deacon's wives. So a deacon must be godly, and also that deacon's wife must be godly in these ways as well. Another translation will say women, possibly meaning that men and women can be deacons. So you kind of have two office inhabitants that is not divided by gender. Now I want to say our, our elders spoke and discussed this at length on Monday. I spent days uh, the last couple of weeks trying to go into all of this and what, what does the text say, because if you're looking at rightly dividing God's word, you must start with what do these words say, then what do these words mean, and then you go into the outer context of of how do they mean what they say they mean in the context of this, and you go even broader and broader and broader. It looks like a bullseye of if this word says this, then the implications are this, and we talked about it for a while at the elders meeting. I've been talking privately to the various elders, and I I just want to say uh, we don't all agree on the very same thing in this. Uh, I've, I've just, it's been so encouraging to be like, man, all right, let's flex some of these muscles and just aiming to understand what this word says. Now, I'm convinced one way, and you'll never know it. No, I'm just kidding. I think the text, so I, I hope you understand these two sides. You've got one qualification listing qualifications of a deacon, and their wives must also be qualified. The other one is you've got qualifications of a male deacon and then qualifications of a female deacon, and then wrapping it up kind of in verse 12, a summary of what deacons do. I think the text is reflective of verse 7. We know that because of likewise. So I I think they're going to be talked about in the same way, how the language flows in that way. 
I'm convinced uh, that this is men leading the church in unifying, unifying efforts, just like it's men leading the church in proclamation and prayer. So what I think this is talking about is these elders or these deacons' wives must be qualified because the role of a deacon is so relational that it actually involves their wife. So they might visit a house together. I know that one, uh, one guy in this church goes so far back in this church where he can recall that one woman wouldn't let in a deacon to her door because she didn't want scandal to break out of this man visiting her. And so this man would bring his wife occasionally when he would go visit her so that they could both go in. You can see how deacons and their wives could serve in a greater way by them being married. And so our church actually has a long history of... Mi- uh, I really am ranting about this, and I, really, I only have like four words on the manuscript about this, but our church has a history of male-only deacons serving for life. And then, it, I don't know when it transitioned, but right now we kind of have a, a pathway of it's, it's a couple, so a husband and wife serving as a deacon couple, and then also widows serving uh, as uh, deacons on that deacon board. I think the text here uh, clearly says one thing. Other wonderful Christians, even on my fellow elder board, uh, are convinced by the other. But we, I think what we also must see here is the, is the big swoop of this text or the, or the whip and woof of what's going on here where elders see something and they speak to it and they pray about it. And then there are these deacons who show up and say, how can we help this church be more unified than before? Where elders say, brothers, we need your help for the sake of the gospel. And the brothers say, we are happy to share in that work. Now, if you want to talk about this, I would love, I would love to be debated back. You know, I had one brother come in and, and argue to be my side, and I was like, I'm convinced as ever. But if you want to come and talk about this, I would love to talk about this. Talk about it afterwards or shoot me an email. Let's set up a, a coffee time. I can come over to your house. And I think it's just so fun to see what does God's word say and watch how it dictates all of our lives. Now, the issue, though, in verses 8 through 13 and verses 2 through 7 is clearly that this church's leadership is ungodly. So come up back to the top for air. What's going on here? Yes, there are particulars that need to be investigated. Yes, there are particulars that need to be followed. But what's going on here? This church is being led by ungodly people. And it's in danger. Because the world will look and say, if that's what a church is, I don't want anything to do with that. So the church won't be putting other Christians ahead of themselves. Nobody worth following is or showing the gospel's love in that way. So deacons are called, finally in this second section, are called to put others ahead of themselves so that when the world or the church looks at this group of men serving one another instead of serving themselves, when they look at this group of people occupied with displaying tangibly the love of Christ to one another and the membership in the church, the people of the church or the people of the world would say, man, there's something different happening there. And what's the difference? Nice people inside that church versus other people? No, what's happening there is a display of the true gospel. Where deacon qualifications are a gospel issue just like elder qualifications. Because both the elders and the deacons, through them, God is working out the gospel in the life of his church. That's why it's so vital that we are to look for those whose hearts are aflamed for such things because their job is from their character. They'll be followed in service because of the qualification of their heart. So biblical church leadership is not something peripheral. It's not uh, a minor matter that we don't need to think about. It's something very important to the life of a healthy church. And I feel like a broken record on this because we talk about it so much. But third, I, I want you to see really why 
elders need to be godly and why deacons need to be godly. That's the final section of here, verses 14 through 16. See the beauty of this text. You might come to this text and say, rules in verses 2 through 7, boring, I'm not an elder, don't care. Rules for verses 8 through 13 of the deacons, boring, not a deacon, don't care, don't want to be. But it's not. Because I want you to see that this church is shipwrecking itself, where the gospel is at stake. And we need to see why it's so important and why, in many ways, it feels like heaven and hell is hanging in the balance of elders and deacons being godly. Here, Paul breaks off his direct instruction to them to actually describe the very nature and leadership of the church, God, godly people leading, and he puts his teaching into perspective. It's like, he, it's like he takes a big step back at the end of a long lecture and says, okay, now let me put this all into perspective. Timothy would have, would have known this, and that's why Paul says, just in case I don't get to you soon, I'm going to remind you an announcement in the church that the church is a household. The church is a family. The church is a, called to be a godly family. It's to be ordered It's to be an ordered family, and that's a good thing. That's a godly thing. It's a good thing to have a dad and a mom. It's a good thing to have elders and deacons. It's a good thing to have governance even within the church. But why? Paul enlarges our view of the church in this case with a double metaphor. He says that the church, it's a pillar, and it's a buttress or a reinforcement or a foundation. Now, what Paul is stressing is that the church properly led properly organized, properly unified, properly defended and taught, lifts up the glory of God like a a pillar from the ground so that all of the world can say, that's the gospel that everyone worships. But it's not just a column out of the ground. It's a buttress of that truth too, which which is upholding something on top. Maybe you've gone to a bank with a big column and you see this Corinthian buttress at the top of that, that that is supposed to make your mind so in awe of Look how glorious that facility is. The church's job is to bear witness to the truth. How? Look at all the passages that, become, that come before this. Combating false teachers, making the gospel clear, living under ordained authority, and having godly leaders. How do we lift up the gospel? Paul says through that. I read this week that a buttress, a lot of us may not know what a buttress is. A buttress, oftentimes we see that as just a foundation or just something lifted up. But But you must understand the sense of a buttress being like a bulwark. A bulwark. You've heard the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. A bulwark never failing. Where a bulwark actually sets to defend what is behind it. What's a bulwark? A bulwark is a solid wall-like structure on the edge of a ship. Or on the outer part of a castle. Where you can can wage great war with protection from behind that. And also in times of fear, you can hide within its grasp. Friends, that is the church for us. A raised buttress of God's truth. A defense of the gospel. Or what is a church? A church is actually the gospel made visible to the outside world. Effectively, that's what this glorious truth Paul speaks of is all about. It's all about the gospel. You see that in verse 16, where it says, Great indeed if we confess this is the mystery of godliness. What is the mystery of godliness? He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up to glory. What is the mystery of the gospel? The very person of Christ. What happens when our church is fueled and fed by godly leaders? We see the mystery of God and where he is. What what happens when our church is fueled by 
godly deacons who defend and promote unity, we see the mystery of godliness. It doesn't make sense to an outside world, but it makes sense to us because we see it in action here. Our truth is Christ. And in this text, Christ in him crucified and glorified. What do we defend? Christ in him crucified. What do we preach? Christ in him crucified. What is our message relationally? How do we encourage one another for the sake of the Lord? It's by nothing else than Christ and him crucified. Well, let me finish with this. There was once a church with a prominent sign out front. It had the church name on it, and it was a beautiful sign. It was a beautiful church, and it was known as a wonderful church. And under the name of that church, it had the slogan, We Preach Christ Crucified. Over time, the teaching of the elders became unbiblical. Just around the same time as the vines would grow around the sign and first covered up, crucified. And nobody cared to defend it. We preach Christ. Sounds pretty good. But who was he? And as you can imagine, the preaching continued to evolve around the same time that the vines continued to evolve to where they covered up the words Christ. So now it's just we preach. That sounds good, doesn't it? What kind of church do you go to? We go to a preaching church. We preach to everyone. What, what do you preach? They used to preach Christ. What kind of Christ? The one who was a slain lamb for his people but no longer. And you can imagine the preaching, once it gets to that point, it would seem as too dogmatic, too authoritative, too top-down, just around the time that the vines would capture the words preach. And that church really showed itself of who they were. They're about themselves. Our feelings, our fortune, our happiness, our joy, it's us. It was finally given to them, the knowledge from the tree of good and evil. You wanted more than what God gave? It's not good. Now, friends, what our passage gets to is not that our church is godly because we have elders. Our passage doesn't say that our church is godly because we have deacons. Our church is not godly because we pray. Our church is not godly because we have the right gender of a pastor, because we fend off false teaching and error, but because our church, who is designed by Christ, ordered by Christ, fueled by Christ, what our passage emphasizes is that a godly church magnifies Christ to a world who so desperately needs him. And is there anything better than that? I hope in many ways what this passage does is it, is it calls you to run straight to the end, verses 14 through 16, on that glorious exaltation of the risen Savior. And in the meantime, go, okay, this is how we're to operate. May God continue to bring us godly people to shepherd our hearts. Let's pray.